0: He's been putting in work for so long. Putting in a lot of work. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to Putting in Work, episode 119 of the interview podcast on the 8-Bit Collective. We are powered by Audio Technica. And I'm your host, John O'Peck, joined this week by Chase Williams from Inno Games. He is the product manager over there at one of the biggest mobile game studios in the world. He's currently in Germany, but I got to know Chase as an assistant producer at PlayStation, Sony San Diego. That's where he worked for a few years, supervising the production of some of PlayStation's exclusive first-party titles. Doing a whole lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that most of us don't really know about. And it was really interesting to talk to Chase about what goes on there. How important it is for people like him, producers, to bring everything together. Because there's so many moving parts when it comes to video game development. Not just the design, not just the art and the programming and everything. It's a whole thing. So... That's really cool, but uh, Chase has also got a really, uh, I find a fascinating way of thinking and discussing and talking about video games itself because he comes from this background of international relations, but he talks about games as a scholar would talk about film or cinema or art, and the best example of that is his podcast limited series on OK Beast, The Greatest Game, which I was fortunate to be a guest of last year. He was hosting that with a guy from NASA just to give you an idea of the intellect going on there. And they talk about topics like defining play, the difference between art and artworks, what defines a masterpiece, all these kinds of things that are easy to overlook as elements that go into game design and game production, and also the experience of playing and enjoying a game. But the way he breaks it down, I find really fascinating at an intellectual level. So that's something there. If you wanna check out more of Chase, but for now, here he is to talk about what he's doing, he's moved to Germany, his experience in the games industry, and more, plus a fascinating insight into the world of PlayStation. Check him out. It's Chase Williams. Enjoy the show. Chase, thank you for joining me. It's uh, great to have you on my podcast after we've done a bit of uh, collaboration together in the past. How's things?
1: Things are good. It's good to be podcasting with you again, and not only with you, but podcasting in general. I've not recorded an episode of anything since, like, December, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of uh, I'm like shaking off the the dust and getting back into it.
0: Mm, yeah, it sounds like you're in the Colosseum at the moment, which is um, going to add a nice little uh, you know international flavor. You're yelling all the way from Germany, which which we haven't had before.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not in my usual uh, soundproof <laughs> studio.
0: You haven't got the egg cartons on the walls yet. That's okay. <laughs> we'll. Um... Well, imagine that that's all in the mail with the, the rest of your stuff that hasn't arrived yet.
1: Yep, that's exactly how it goes.
0: Oh, man. It's a tough thing to move anywhere, even if you're moving around the block, but I can only imagine how frustrating and how much effort and thought process it takes to move to the other side of the world.
1: Yeah, there is a lot of just logistics and bureaucracy that goes with it. Like, I knew mm-hmm. that it would be a challenge and a part of the That was a part of what attracted me to it is I wanted to take those challenges head on because I knew it would just make me like a stronger individual in the world. But man, you definitely feel like you're at the mercy of a bureaucratic sort of system when your things are basically a mile away in some port and they just can't get through customs (laughs) and you have no idea why, you know?
0: Well, hopefully that's all sorted soon. So before we get into the the big move, let's kind of backtrack through your... uh, through your resume, through your origin story and uh, talk about who you are and, and how you got here. So Chase, you studied some form of uh, games industry pathway, was it, back in the day?
1: Actually, it wasn't necessarily. My, um, my major in college was international relations and global studies. When I was in school, I was actually very interested in Um, history and with international relations in particular and Mm. I kind of had this idea that maybe I would be like an ambassador or something of of that uh, ilk but as I was getting closer to my senior year and video games were always at the forefront of my mind I ended up writing my capstone paper on why video games needed to be studied at a or added to international relations curriculum because they were like a major piece of global media that essentially wasn't talked about whenever we would get to sort of global culture as Mm. a subject. And that really really culminated in me writing uh, much more and falling in love with writing. And once I graduated, I was basically continuing my habit of writing about video games, which started in my research of that paper because I really Mm -hmm. recognized that there were scholars in the field of video games and I had never known that before and so through writing I was able to apply um to a marketing internship with a small studio called Hellfire Games in Austin, Texas and it was kind of on the back of the capstone that I had written and my own habit of writing articles that I was able to show them that I could um that I could write copy basically Mm. and that's how I kind of got my first job in the industry.
0: So that time that you were at university. Did you? Was that when you first spent some time in Germany, like a, a semester abroad?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm. So with international relations and global studies, you are you have to study abroad to get your degree. And I was, and, and that also means you have to take a, a language course. I had taken German in high school, and so I just continued with German into college, and ended up studying in southern Germany in a town called Würzburg. And I was there for two months. And, um, yeah, that's where I got my experience traveling for the first time. And it was actually through seeing Berlin that I was really just like, uh, smitten with the country and kind of had Mm. this goal in the back of my mind that I would like to get there someday.
0: Okay. So was it based on the paper that you wrote in college that got you into Hellfire? Like what was the connection for you between international relations and being a producer at a game studio?
1: Yeah. So I mean, it was really as simple as showing that I could competently communicate and write, you know, because production work was yeah. is, is basically, you know, centered around being a prime communicator to many groups of people. And when I was in that internship, I at the time didn't know that I wanted to be a producer. It was through that job that I actually discovered what the producer role was. Um, but I think for Hellfire, you know, they were a very small operation, so they just really needed somebody to fill the gaps of what needed to be done around the studio, which is kind of also a really good way to explain the production role. And as someone who was very eager, uh, and who has always tried to apply themselves in their job, once I got hired, it it, it was more about like, I was asking for more things to do as much as I, time that I was anytime that I would rope my current responsibilities into like a daily, um, I could take care of them day to day easily, then it was just about adding more to that workload consistently, Mm. you know?
0: Was games always something you wanted to work in? Or was it kind of just you stumbled into it realizing that you, through studying international relations and and maybe writing that paper, you realized, oh wait, there's a place for me in the games industry?
1: Yeah, it's... It's kind of odd because, um, you know, I, I had been involved with video games my entire life and I had been listening to video game podcasts since I was in, like, middle school and had been watching E3 every year of my life kind of deal. But when it came to my studies, I would see myself as, like, a like a, uh, a history professor or maybe I would do this international relations gig and try to actually have a, an, a, an effect on, like, global affairs Mm. but as the semesters were winding down and it was time to actually think about applying to jobs suddenly all I could think about was like if I'm going to apply to companies they're going to be video game companies because it's the only ones that I know and care about and then you know next thing you know you're looking at every you're looking at a list of video game studios in Austin and then you're seeing what it is you might be able to do and it was, it was not even like a, a, a formal decision as much as it was like a, a natural step in my own personality, I guess. Like, mm. it's it's kind of hard to explain.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And I guess it would, would have been during that time at Hellfire that you would have kind of first had some interaction with Sony?
1: Yes, because they did publish their game on PlayStation 4, and my big... Um, I did. Get, I I got to do a lot of Sony specific tasks. Like I had to lead our team through the technical requirements checklist, which is a basically the list of all of the tests that you need to do for your game to pass format. And so I led. You know that was very sp- Sony specific. You have to make sure that you're using their icons correctly and everything. I also got to make the trophy list for our game, which was nice. like deeply <laughs> satisfying. Being somebody who is like a A trophy chaser and who listens to podcasts where trophies are important you know so that was like a like a a really cool rite of passage or sort of accomplishment in my eyes but then I also got to write the game description for our game that would be read on like the drop and so then hearing all the podcasts that I used to listen to read the text that I put into like into the playstation store was also very cool and I I made the trailer for our game. So if you go and, and look up Big City Stories on PlayStation 4 on the on the PSN store, the trailer that plays was made and edited by me. And so
0: That's cool. Yeah,
1: you you yeah, it, it, there's a lot of pride like kind of getting to integrate yourself in something that you've been following for like many years, you know.
0: Yeah, no doubt. This is going to be a really niche question, but when it comes to the trophies, does the developer say we've got five gold, 10 silver and and 20 20- bronze and a platinum or is it up to you to actually come up with the requirements and everything yourself
1: it's all you yeah you you basically have a budget you have like a amount of points that you can use and you can divide those among the weighted trophies how you want and i mean you could i think technically probably just do one big ass trophy they might (laughs) like say no like they might send it back and say you can't do that, or there might be rules against it. I, I forget at this point, but yeah, you can you can split them up as you want, and then there are some guidelines. Like our game was free to play, so free to play games can't have trophies, right? So or I mean, can't have uh, platinums. So right. I couldn't put like a full suite of trophies in there. But or or if it's like a DLC add-on, there's like some limitations there. But yeah.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. We could talk about trophies all day, but we better not because yeah, no, <laughs> uh, I agree. a lot of people would not have any idea what we're on about. Um, yeah. so from there, how did you end up at Sony? Because, uh, like from what it sounds like PlayStation has been a big part of your life definitely has mm. been for me. So I can imagine, you know, from the outset, the idea of, if we told you while you were studying one day, you're going to be at Sony, <laughs> that would have been pretty, pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. It was certainly surreal, but it was very, really, uh, pretty simple. Like, I was able to um, earn the title of associate producer at Hellfire Games, and I always felt that like that title was given to me, maybe not prematurely, but it was it, it was something that I knew I needed to grow into because production work was usually the culmination of a couple years of like QA experience or um, experience in the studio in some other way and so to earn that title I think because of how small the company was and just because of the work that the type of work that I was doing was really surreal for me and I always felt like I needed to live up to it which pushed me to really work hard at it and so when I when that studio um, uh, when I left that studio I was just looking for associate producer roles and uh, happened to be on Sony's like mothership uh, website where they have like career listings for all their studios and then sure yeah. enough you see assistant producer at Sony San Diego which is you know exactly what my title was and then I applied uh, at, at the at the time I was also networking um, a lot and I had met some key members of like the Blue Point team in Austin who kind of mentored me a little bit and gave me a lot of advice because I was always seeking advice out. Like I would try to go and have lunch with people that I would meet in the industry and and pick their brains. And I was able to get a really nice letter of recommendation from one of those uh, gentlemen. And I think that along with my resume uh, really kind of, made me stand out, which was why I was lucky enough to basically get picked up, you know.
0: What was it like to walk in there and see the Sony Interactive Entertainment America signage and, and yeah. be part of what they were doing there and, and look around and, you know, just see some of the games that they'd worked on in the past?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a feeling of, like, total consummation where you're you're basking in sort of what you've been able to achieve because just being able to walk into that door with that badge is an achievement you know and you just feel there's just like a lightness like you're you're elated you know every day you you view that you view the ability to work for them as like a privilege right and hmm. that definitely is a part of the Uh, you know, of the the person or the, yeah, the personality of someone who is green at any job, I think, right? Like, you know, you compare yourself to maybe someone who's been working there five years, the the sheen maybe isn't the same, but I know that having the PlayStation bug, like the icon everywhere on my badge, on my notebooks, on my pens, just filled me with pride and it makes you want to do good work. And not only that, but Sony is a very big company and they take care of their employees with their perks and benefits and so getting to have uh, access to like first party titles at a discount or refurbished playstations at a discount and when new games are coming out that I know that my friends like I'm going to pick them up a code and I'm going to send it to them and being really plugged into that ecosystem and that company was just it it, it's it puts you on cloud nine you you feel like you're a part of something special and you realize like how special the opportunity truly is, especially when you tell somebody like, Hey, where do you work? Oh, I work at PlayStation. Like the look on their face every time reminds (laughs) you of, of just how grateful you should be. You know,
0: I can only, yeah, like I said, I can only imagine how rad that would be. So while you were there, what were some of the titles that you were able to be part of? And I guess what did your job involve there?
1: Yeah. So I was hired uh, into their external development team, which was uh, basically a team of, like, five or six uh, production personnel that managed projects that were being contracted by PlayStation. So in this regard, we were a, I believe, a third-party publisher. Uh, I don't know, we'd be... Mm-hmm. It's a dude... And by the way, the delineating, like, second-party, third-party, not even people who do the job, like, can even give it to you straight. But <laughs> we would basically yeah. pay developers to make games exclusively for PlayStation, um, and so... We were either assisting the titles that were already released or we were helping with the titles that were soon to be released. And so when I first got there, I assisted in a very like small way the launch of Drawn to Death, which came out mm-hmm. um, right about the time that I was being hired. And, but my main role was to support the game Guns Up, which was a PlayStation 4 um, free-to-play like asynchronous multiplayer um, like tower defense game, basically. And so I remember that. Yeah. I, and that was also kind of crazy because I remember watching the trailer for that game at PSX and being like, that looks pretty cool. And then, sure, sure enough, you're going to end up working on it, right? <laughs> but yeah, basically, how the studio was set up was the majority of the personnel worked on MLB, and that's the MLB studio. And they're just over there cranking out those titles every year. Uh, and then we kind of had our own little operation in the corner of making, of, of producing, and publishing these smaller games.
0: Okay. And so when you say that you, you know, work on these games, what does that mean as a producer? Like what is your uh, Mm day-to-day role? Like I think from past conversations with you, it involves like making sure that the developers are hitting targets and that they have everything they need. Is that essentially the idea?
1: Yeah, I mean, in a in a broad way, that's exactly it. So you are the one who are managing their milestones. So they have agreed, we have, you know, every every party involved has agreed on like, what is to be delivered in the future. And so you are tracking that delivery, and making sure that things are moving towards that deadline in a, in a proper pace. And then, yes, the, the core idea is that you are you are there to unblock anybody who becomes blocked. Like, if somebody can't work or work is being delayed for a specific reason, you are the one who's going to figure out how to solve that problem. And it also means taking a lot of the busy work off of the developer's plate so they can just focus on the game. So like being from Sony, whenever we had uh, like new art assets put into the game, they needed to be, to be approved by a legal team. And so I would try to, uh, anytime there was a new patch or milestone, it's like, okay, send me all the art that's going in the game. I will do the talking with legal. I will get us the approval okay, we think that the patch is going to be released at this time, I will speak with release management, I will schedule the um, format uh, process, and I will make sure that our server support team knows that we need to update the server to this specific branch at this specific time. I will make a checklist for the actual deployment, and that way when we actually do deploy the patch, I'm the one who's in charge of basically quarterbacking all of the individual steps, so yeah, you, you basically take over the organizational part of the project and uh, you're, you're, you're breaking everything into their component tasks and assigning them, making sure that they're being done and helping people when they can't be done, you know?
0: Mm. And so for someone that's always had an interest in games, how much did this particular work change the way that you view development? Because mm. it's probably very different from what the typical person would associate with game development, right?
1: Right, and it's actually why I'm even happy to be having this conversation with you is because I recognize very quickly that the production aspect of games is something that isn't spoken about very often when it comes to um, the enthusiast media. And a lot of the times when people think about being a game developer, they think about being a designer, being a programmer, or being an artist, and those are all core fields of video games and they're all something that anybody who says like I want to create games and they download their first free engine they're going to be doing all of those things in some capacity but there's also so many other support roles QA careers release management careers marketing careers legal careers um, public relations careers server support careers there's all kinds of stuff that you can do that don't necessarily get the spotlight and so, yes, it immediately made me want to tell people about the about the role, first of all, and explain to people that if you don't have like a specific skill like art or programming, and I would consider myself to be in the same wheel uh, in that same category, then production might be for you because, like, for, for example, the international relations discipline is an interdisciplinary um, degree field where you are sitting in classes with the uh, economics majors, then you're sitting in classes with the uh, like political science majors and government, and like you're going through all of these different fields, and it makes you into like a more, it, it, it changes the way that you think about things. You think about things yeah. in a more broad, relational kind of ma- uh, manner, and that really transfers into production because. You need to wear a lot of hats, and you're not an expert in anything, but you have a tacit understanding of how everything works, and you need to be able to see things from, like, a larger, holistic picture, um, and you need to be able to communicate, you need to be able to speak to people, and that is exactly where my personality lies, and that's why when I learned about the production role, it was, like, a no-brainer that I wanted to pursue it, so getting to see it firsthand i wanted to become like an evangelist for it uh (laughs) to like tell people about it but to get also back to the root of your question i also started looking at games as more more as like products recognizing that even though i did get to have design input on some aspects of the titles that i worked on or you know, you, you get to see the ideation phase a little bit, and that's a very fun, expressive, artistic exercise. At the end of the day, you're selling a product, and it makes you evaluate games as products, as something that is on the shelf competing for a dollar, and you realize what makes somebody willing to spend their their hard-earned money on something. And that also changed the way that I looked at video games critically, it also makes me realize how much, um, I would say like the review driven discussion in the enthusiast press is actually, uh, very much geared towards a commercial evaluation of something than it is an artistic expressive evaluation. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think all of those things together is sort of what the role gave to me, you know?
0: Yeah. I really like that. It's, um, interesting to think about, games in that way and mm-hmm. I had Camina Vincent, who is, was the producer on Florence from mountain studio in Melbourne. And she was on nice. my podcast when I was at PAX and just like from talking to her as someone that was working at a very small studio, like even they had a producer on their game because mm. it was a development cycle that required timelines and organization. Yep. And it, it makes you realize like, yeah, like game developers in the creative sense, are very you know intelligent and able to you know design things and make things work and that's amazing but those skills don't always and i'm generalizing but they don't always line up with organization and logistics and the things that people like you are skilled at so right. yeah it, it, it really is a great game development because it's a great example of like the human body of yes. cooperation and and everything needs to make sure that You know the hand knows what the foot's doing and the mouth knows what the you know the arm's doing and it just all works together so beautifully and that's Mm -hmm. when you get a great game and then you know times where maybe that doesn't work so well we can see in the end result that you know if you get the inside story it's probably where they went wrong was that something didn't happen in that chain i guess
1: yeah absolutely
0: so your time at sony had to come to an end unfortunately Mm -hmm. uh how did that go down and, and what was it like to kind of bounce out of there and have to find something next
1: yeah, so it, it, it came about, it, it was there was changes to Sony's overall leadership in terms of, I think, who is now the president of Sony Interactive Entertainment America. I think there was a change up there. And you can, you can kind of see, if you are a follower of Sony, you can see for yourself how their approach to publishing games has changed in, in what they sort of focus the re- resources on, how they structure their, their studios, what their studios are doing, right? Like kind of at the yeah. reveal event for PlayStation 4, there was very much like a, an independent games fervor from them. And I think as they've had bigger hits like God of War, Horizon Zero Dawn, even the MLB game is a good example where they have like a, a single studio making one extremely polished high value yeah. product you can, you could, uh, the writing was kind of on the wall that the, the strategy was changing. And then at the end of the fiscal year, um, my team's projects got canceled and then I ended up getting laid off, which was a bummer. And it sounds a little more, you know, it sounds harsh, like it, people listening might like want to automatically send like empathetic messages. And I I understand, and I appreciate those, but I will reiterate again, that Sony as a, as an employer, was just the definition of class, and the way that the, that transition out of the company went could not have been any better for me, and so, yes, like, leaving the studio on my last day, you know, looking at the highway as I'm, I'm driving back home, I'm thinking, like, well, this chapter of my life, like, closed much quicker than I anticipated, I really thought I was going to be at Sony for a longer period of time, but I just need to find out for myself what the, Uh, what's going to come next and I have no idea really what it will be. I didn't even necessarily know if I was going to continue working in video games because of how volatile the industry was because that was my basically my second layoff despite you know at both studios being always told um, from your superiors that you're doing like a great job and, and things like that and so you really realize that some things are out of your control, and it gives you a little bit of um, like empathetic understanding for some of the, some of the older generation who will tell you that like you know life isn't fair, right? And it's mm. it it was my opportunity to kind of get to feel those feelings firsthand. But it it wasn't anything I really wallowed in, or um, or I, I was able to to not dwell in them, which was nice, and also a, a result of the of the transition that that Sony gave me, but. Yeah, essentially I took a, um, I took time, about a month and a half, to just not really worry about things and ha- enjoy some time off. And then when I got back to my house and needed to start the job search, I did kind of look around at different cities in America to see maybe where I would want to go next because I did move from Austin to San Diego and I wasn't necessarily convinced that I would be in San Diego long term. But you just start to – or I started to recognize that my resume was – perfectly geared for video game companies, and yet again, here we are, in and in, in, in it's time to apply for jobs, and the jobs that are on my mind are with companies that I know from video games, and with the Sony name on my back, I kind of had the confidence to see if, you know, where I could get next, and, mm. you know, I just basically started applying for, for games and, and keeping the path alive, I guess.
0: That's cool. I guess it would be a, a difficult thing to decide that you're tied to this industry that has been not negative, but you'd mentioned like the, the volatile nature of, of it and realizing Mm -hmm. that that's maybe the way that it's just going to go from now on. But I guess for better or worse, you're, you're all in on games.
1: Yeah. I mean, you exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. I mean, it's, it's part of the adventure, I guess. And it's like, uh, you hear a lot of, uh, you know, criticism of how the, the games industry functions and all the union issues, but it it seems like people who are working in there wouldn't have it any other way in the sense that they're making these games and they're in that industry that they love despite its flaws that, you know, hopefully one day it can be a much better situation for everybody involved. But I guess it's, uh, you know, that's right. Like people know when they're getting into it, it's not a perfect scenario, but it's what they want to do.
1: Exactly, and it's also one of, if not the hardest, entertainment product in the world to make. You know, you were talking just a moment ago about all of the about how it's a perfect, um, like metaphor for like the human, just the human like body of how of how many different things are moving together. Like making video games is prohibitively difficult and you are fighting your own game at all points in times and anything can break it and you will have no idea where or why it came from and you're having to synthesize um you know people who make who sculpt art with the people who make the sound with the people who write the systems all of these different types of people and types of brains to get them to make one coherent product uh it's incredibly difficult um and there's definitely ways to do it right there's ways to do it wrong where everyone's still figuring it out but you also or not you personally but the majority of people don't really get to read the articles about the companies who are doing it incredibly well right like even the company that I work for right now and which we'll get to I'm sure soon inno games they there's no it is one of the most relaxed places I've ever worked in my life and they are one of the biggest mobile games developers in Germany and also like in the world. And you can just it's amazing to come into that environment and see like, okay, all of the the kind of BS that goes along um, that is being negatively that is being covered in the industry, all the negativity that does exist. It doesn't have to exist. And and, and to me, it's shown that like, excuse me there, there is a, a way to do it that's sustainable and, um, that still brings success as long as you are orienting, orientating your goals yeah. to, um, I would say maybe more stable and believable expectations and things. So,
0: yeah, no, that's great. And you mentioned, you know, games you mentioned with, I guess already mentioned that you're over in Germany, but was, mm-hmm. I want to know, like, was that semester you spent abroad over there, the seed that planted you to look as far as somewhere like Germany and going over there and and how did you end up at, you know, games?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So getting the itch to travel and having that uh, desire come about in the country of Germany certainly biased me towards wanting to be there again. And I just always I thought of my time fondly there and I had, you know, a little bit of the language underneath my belt where I could converse in a somewhat uh, mediocre fashion. (laughs) So I I, I had that connection as well. But yeah, I was essentially just looking through game job postings online and found a product manager position at a company in Germany. And I don't think I even really looked at what the game was. I was just like, what? Product manager? Germany? All right, let's try it out. And I got the email, got an email, got an interview, and then just the whole process started happening. And I, 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 I'm still coming to terms with it, right? Like I, I'm so stoked to be here. And, you know, even though there's a lot of difficulties with learning how to move overseas, getting used to a different country, uh, that's all a part of the story and I wanted to eventually live in Europe so that I could travel Europe because I, I do love to travel and like for example I went to Japan for like a couple of weeks a, a little over a year ago and even being there for a couple of weeks it was longer than most people are willing to spend on a vacation but it still wasn't enough. It's like I can't possibly experience all that I would want to or need to in this small amount of time. And so I kind of just felt like I would rather move overseas so that I can actually be in a new place and have access to these other new places without having to just see them in two-week chunks once a year. You know what
0: I mean? Sure, sure. And like you said, like, it's another country, but Germany has a very different culture to where you've come from, like San Diego, California to Germany is, you know, they're worlds apart and even just the way that people interact and body language from what I've heard about Germany and I'm half German, so I can probably say this, but you know, Mm there doesn't seem to be the focus on small talk and the niceties that we kind of take for granted, whether it's smiling at someone that's working at the supermarket um, or something as as small as that. It's, it's uh, it seems like it's a very different world over there compared to where you come from.
1: Yeah. Yeah. At first you start to pick up on different like mannerisms and you think, is this, you're thinking about it in like a, a one person perspective you're like wow this person is kind of different in a way that I wouldn't expect and how do I feel about that but then you start to recognize the same patterns over multiple people and they're like okay this is more of like a, maybe this is a regional thing or maybe this is like a German thing yeah,
0: and
1: yeah my my eyes are slowly becoming open to more and more of the, the cultural differences and that, be, that that is even how people joke and how people talk, the rhythms of their delivery yeah. and you know, it, it, it's, it's everything.
0: Yeah. I think I remember reading an article about someone that did some lecturing over there and he was buying something and he was looking for the right change. And he was like, just kind of awkwardly laughing and looked up at this person and they had the completely straight face. And he realized that yeah. over there, you don't just laugh to be polite or to like fill in silence. You know, it's, it's, it's yeah. there's no context for a kind of, I guess it's a a code over here it's a signifier of, of of it's communicating something yes that's hard to kind of put your finger on and explain and to them it would just be like why is this person laughing exactly yeah <laughs> yeah
1: yeah and you i i have all of the my own personality traits that come from the states and sometimes i'm like i even have to ask people here like if I wanted to convey like a certain politeness in this situation and they they basically just tell me like, you really shouldn't, like I know that you want to because <laughs> it's who you are and you're used to doing it. And it's even a part of like your overall, like you've been doing it for so long, but it's never going to come across the way that you want it to. So mm. just don't, you know? And it's like, okay, it's yeah, funny. all right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's probably why so many people think like, foreigners are rude when they come over here and they just say what they think but it's like no that's just the way (laughs) communication works in this country you know yeah absolutely it's great okay so tribal wars it's a huge franchise that they're making over there it's been around for way longer than i realized yeah so what's it been like to be part of the the studio that's working on that and is that really the the main focus for them
1: it is awesome so i yeah you're right it's been around it's coming up on its 16th year What's crazy is that I actually played the game in high school, (laughs) and so, like, coming to to realize that I was about to work on this game was also like, holy shit, this is so cool. But the game is incredibly important to their history. It is the game that the co-founders wrote together, and that game's success over from, like, 2003 to 2006, basically, is what built the company. And so... They took the success they found with Tribal Wars, and started Inno games, and then started releasing new browser games, Um, and they now have a pretty big portfolio of browser and mobile titles. Uh, a, A game that they advertise quite frequently on TV is Forge of Empires. That's one that I was tacitly familiar with just from their advertisements. They also do a game called Elvenar, which is fairly popular amongst people, but the thing is, is like you and I are come from like the, the console side of the gaming industry, and we have no idea that these companies and, and other titles exist, even though they contribute to a massive amount of the gross industry-like revenue that we like to cite when we talk about how big video games are. They're, they're a major component of that. Um, but yes, Tribal Wars is important culturally for the studio because it was what the game or what the studio was founded on and it continues to have success. Um, And I would say that it even deserves a footnote in the uh, history of the internet in some capacity, because a lot of Europeans uh, in 2003 who were getting the internet for the first time found this game and they've been playing it there ever since. Um, And Mm. we, we have a, we have a player base that plays tribal wars like it's chess, you know, they're never going to not play it. It's a part of their life. uh, And that's, it's really cool. I, I definitely walk in to work every day, super proud that I get to work on Tribal Wars, cool. you know.
0: And so what is the product manager role? How does that differentiate from the previous producer roles? Is it much the same?
1: I would say it is. I, I would think that um, I may be speaking a little off base here as I, and I may come to learn more about it. But I, I think that product manager kind of is a, a stand in for a, a producer title, like they're kind of synonymous it, so it's, it's a little bit more responsibility for me this time. Um, now I'm actually managing people, so I have, like, direct reports. Now I'm actually in charge of the roadmap, and I get to define what the roadmap is. And now I have obligations to revenue targets, and I am a part of projecting revenue targets. And so I was able to basically just take the next step in my career when getting this job and go from um, assistant production to uh, to more of like the full producer type of role hmm. um which has been fantastic you know i i've learned more in the last three months than i did i mean i mean that i've honestly been lucky to be continually learning in my career but I've, i'm now learning again at a, a much faster rate you know just because now yeah. i have new things to do that i've never done before
0: yeah i guess that's one way to expand your skill set is to move to another country and have to work out a new way to do things. It's probably been a a huge learning curve in the few months you've been over there. Yeah, (laughs) that's cool. So what would you say has been the hardest part of getting to where you're at where I guess you could confidently go into any studio with the experience you've had and, and probably feel like you can add something to what they're doing there. Right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I'm speaking the language of the discipline. I feel like I speak the language of the industry. I, am learning to trust my instincts and to trust my own my own talents because as i'm around people who have been doing this they they tell me that i have a good instinct and so i'm just learning to go with it but as far as what's been difficult is it is hard to actually manage the smaller stuff for me like i can kind of see big picture uh, roadmaps and understand how things are going to affect like long term planning but there's just so much minutia in game development of getting the final feature over the finish line that is really hard for me, um, or not hard, but it is it is a big challenge, and I just still, I, I mean, I will always have, like, there's always going to be more experience to gain, right? Like, right now, I have the perspective of somebody who has only worked on you know, a, a particular scope of project and has a particular scope of responsibility. But when you get to, like, the studio director level and then finally, like, the the chief product officer level, you're looking at things uh, and it, you're, you're not concerned with the things that I'm concerned about. And learning to take what i'm doing now and also try to understand how it fits into the broader companies like strategy or how it fits into our section of the industry like what is our competition doing and and now being actually like i need to reliably be playing games that we compete against so that i can like keep tabs on them see what they're doing see what they're doing well That's all, that's all new stuff. You know, I used to kind of just get to come home and and play whatever I wanted. Now I have a small obligation to, to learn more about this side of mobile, the mobile industry, because it's not a side that I grew up listening to podcasts about, right? So I, there's a lot of learning to still be done uh, in that aspect. Yeah,
0: cool. No doubt. So what would be your advice to people who want to work in a, you know, video game industry or connected role? but they don't have that programming background they don't have that design background they want to apply their own skills to that industry that they love like you have right
1: yeah so i would definitely say that learn to learn to write in a clear and concise manner make it so that you can get your point across as clearly and as quickly as possible really evaluate what your strengths are when it comes to organization show at a potential employer the ways that you have finished a project from start to finish explain the ways that you organize yourself that you organize other people's work how you would see yourself organizing a team explain to potential employers your attitude towards being proactive and finding potential problems how uh, explain the way that you're able to prioritize your time? Because a lot of the in a lot of instances you have more things in a day to do than you have time for, and it's very important to know what the priorities are. So you need to be able to explain how you prioritize things. But also, like if you're getting into a, a, a an entry level role that isn't exact that doesn't have the producer tag on it, but you want to get there. One, tell them that, tell your employers that you have a desire to work in production and you want to learn those things through the role that you're, that you're applying for. But then once you, you know, have your internship or you have your first role, make yourself almost um, like constantly ask questions, um, figure out what pieces of responsibility that the team has, like figure out why they're happening Uh, Because it's going to give you the, the, the overall look at the project. And so you can see in those kind of broader terms. And then also show up in your boss's office and explain that you need more work. You know, like try to wrangle your role as best as you can. And then once you have your responsibilities down and you're competent at them, ask for more. And basically, I consider the production role to really not be too terribly difficult it's more about managing a lot of very small undifficult things and so the best producers may not it's not like that they're they're geniuses so to speak you know they're going to have a lot of experiences and wisdom through their own time in the industry but it's that they can manage their tasks so well that they have time for more tasks and that's that's kind of it like you're you're taking one piece of the puzzle and learning it and then taking the time that it takes to complete it and minimizing it as much as possible so that you can then fit more things into your day. And as you slowly but surely um, deduce all of those things into smaller and smaller pieces, you're just asking for more. And yeah,
0: that's kind of how I, I view it. No, it's cool. It's great advice. And I think that, if people look at what you've done, then they can see that, you know, there is a path to get there and you've certainly, you know, worked hard to, to fine tune what it is you do. Cause I, I imagine there'd be a lot of people mm. that would try and fail, but you've managed to stick in there cause it's been like basically five, four or five years of doing it consistently right now. Hasn't it?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's mm. kind of wild to think about. Um, and that, yeah, that failure that you're mentioning, like, that's another part of production is like you're going to make the wrong decisions and you're going to cause problems. But, a, you know, a part of this role is fixing those problems that you've started and then being able to clearly evaluate why that problem happened and learning from it and moving on. And your employers are going to expect you to make mm-hmm. mistakes. And um, they're never fun to make, but you will make them and you will learn from them and, and then you'll keep going forward, yeah. you know.
0: I doubt. So before we get to the last question, there was a couple of things I wanted to go through just because I've got you here, so I may as well ask because I think you have a probably a unique insight into the beast that is PlayStation. Uh it's something very close sure. to my heart. And because you don't work for them anymore, there's probably nothing holding you back from being honest. So yeah. What do you what do you think is in store for the next couple of years of Playstation? I guess we all know some of the things that they're doing well, some of the things they're probably not doing well. Uh, what what do you see in their future as far as the next few years? And I guess that includes the next generation of consoles.
1: Yeah. I mean, I see them continuing their strategy uh, with their first party. I think it's paying off dividends. I think that their titles drive the enthusiast conversation and are consistently well-polished critical successes. And I don't think there's any reason to change that right now. And If it means that maybe they try to even get more studios to keep this um, intellectual, or yeah, to keep to keep these first-party titles going, maybe that's it, or maybe they maybe they expand the teams that are now proven and try to do multiple projects at the same time. I Mm. can really see that. I think that they did lose a lot of the ground and goodwill of the indie gamer, but at the same time, I don't really know what it means to be to have an indie scene in the market right now because there are so many games released every week. And so it's not even like there's not the distinguishment of like an indie title, a small, a small game coming out, isn't really special anymore. And so, yes, they could be using their voice to highlight their uh, like the, the titles that maybe make their digital offerings um, stand out, but it sounds challenging I can also speak from experience that 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 company is a slow-moving Goliath, and there are a lot of times where, and this is a problem, you know, when you work with multiple teams in a single organization, you want to feel like everyone has the same goal and that everyone is on each other's team, and it was sometimes rare for that to happen. I felt like, I felt isolated in, in my department at times, I felt like my priorities in my work were not almost like respected in some regards and that kind of siloing off of the different branches is going to is it that hurts any organization and so i think that they 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 could they could be put on their back foot from a more nimble Uh, competition and i think sometimes you see that with their long time acquiescence into like cross-platform types of Mm. initiatives and things like that and it's just because it's very hard to change things over there that's at least in in my small time like that that was my perspective you know
0: okay so i feel like with the successes of the console sales and the critically acclaimed you know, first and second party games that they've been able to put out of the past few years, there's kind of been a pendulum swinging where they've become, like you said, less focused on indies, but also less focused on, um, I guess, pro-consumer strategies. And whether it's cross-play, whether it's, you know, PlayStation Plus or whatever it might be, we've seen Nintendo and Microsoft kind of pick up that slack and do all these consumer-friendly moves. Do you think that that pendulum will swing back and Sony will maybe be a little bit less tone deaf as far as some of those moves, or do you think that they're powerful enough as far as the success of the console that they don't need to think too much about that at this point?
1: Yeah. I I think they have definitely built up the capability to be resistant to a lot of those, maybe like uh, to to the competition kind of purposely making a point to show that they're different than Sony and to show Mm -hmm. that they're better in, in these, in these ways. But I think that resistance can only last as long as they're able to deliver in the other areas. I just don't really know what the future of gaming kind of holds, which is a little crazy to say. It's this these yeah. next generations of consoles will be it they'll be fascinating to watch and to see how they're how they develop. Um, but in terms of of Sony potentially like losing the goodwill of their audience, like there's also just the aspect of i i don't know what it means for nintendo and xbox to come out and say that we're cla- we're cross platform with everything now and while it m- it makes a difference for people like you and i who are then the cheerleaders for these products in the wild
0: yeah
1: i look at the i mean the the video game industry is so it it is growing at a ridiculous rate, you know, like 10 percentage points a year, which is just unbelievable. And the amount of people that play games, but play games outside of the kind of habits that maybe you and I have, which is a more like, we're more like connoisseurs. We like to sample a lot of things and play a, a variety of experiences where there's so many gamers out there who like they play one game and that's the game that they play, and, and gaming for them is more of a social, uh, a social practice of having a community of people, and there's just, there's times where I, I think that the questions that, like, we ask, you know, you and I, uh, when it comes to trying to figure out what the, the arc of the industry will be, I think they're valid questions, but I also wonder if they're, like, if they're just totally, <clears throat> totally centered in our own, our own uh you know passions and hobbies you know
0: yeah we might be too close to it (laughs) right yeah okay no that's interesting and yeah it will be fascinating to see how things evolve especially with those uh, i guess first announcements of uh the next generation and what that's going to look like yeah cool so just before the final question i want to give you a chance to plug some of the uh okay beast content that you've worked on we did uh greatest game podcast is a series that you've put a lot of effort into so I just thought I'd let you explain what it is because you do it so well rather than me trying to do it
1: yeah thank you yeah so if you're interested in sort of reading uh, articles or listening to podcasts that I've put out a lot of my 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 work is more focused on um, the critical aspects of video games I do a lot of research in my spare time about um, the philosophy of art and the philosophy of meaning uh, in art history and I try to apply work that has been in scholarship for many years to video games. Um, One culmination of that project is a podcast series called The Greatest Game, which has six episodes now, one of which Jono was a a guest on. And you can just find that on podcast services or iTunes by searching The Greatest Game um, and maybe putting OK Beast in the search bar. You can also probably find it that way just on Google if you want to watch it. And then, yeah, if you type in just Chase Williams, OK Beast, um, you'll find my articles that have been posted to that website. I've done things like reviews for Octopath Traveler. I've done more critical minded uh, articles where I try Like one of my favorite articles is called Dark Souls and the Lifespan of a Masterpiece. And that is uh, basically looking at Dark Souls to explain what the word masterpiece means from an artistic perspective that I'm really proud of. Um, I've also done articles about uh, a concept called affordances, which are just it's like the idea of looking at an object and knowing what the object does and applying that to handheld gaming consoles to explain
0: mm.
1: why a lot of us um, are so drawn to them and will and will buy games twice just to own them on those platforms. So, um, you can also go to my Twitter feed. I'm at Bodacious Chase, and my pinned tweet is an article linking to basically every everything that I've done. So you can find it there.
0: Boom, there it is. Yeah. I love the way you think, and I love the way you talk about games. So definitely go and check that stuff out if it, uh, if it interests you. Thank you. Uh, that's all right. So the final question, something I ask everybody, Chase, mm-hmm. if you could do anything and know that you wouldn't fail, what would you do?
1: I would make my own video game development or publishing company and (laughs) that's kind of that's kind of what is acquiescing into my goals and and into my view of the future at this point i feel like i want to get all of the um i want to see all all of the the operations into what makes a successful gaming company and then it's time to apply my own vision towards whatever that is you know
0: that's awesome if you need a writer Hit me up. I'd love to <laughs> I'd love to collab. That'd be fun That'd be dope. Yeah. So, what kind of game would you be wanting to make? What's your uh, magnum opus? <laughs> uh,
1: I have no idea. I feel like at this point, I'm in a I'm in a period where I I realize how like a lot of people when they do like a hobby uh, game design document, they get they want to do like a big project. They want to get into the minutia of what the systems and mechanics would be. And I'm actually at a point now where I'm. I'm trying to ideate with very, like, simple stripped-down pieces of, um, like, code and mechanics, and then you kind of build there. So if I did video games, I would want them to be – like, I would want people to play my games and be like, this is what – this shows the expressive capacity of this particular medium. That, that would be what I want them to walk away with, basically. And cool. however that happens, I don't know.
0: One day. We'll, we'll find out yeah. one day. <laughs> thanks for coming on the show, Chase. It's been interesting to me. I think people will uh, get a lot out of it, too.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on, dude. It's a pleasure, and it's always enjoyable to talk with you.
0: Thank you for listening, and thanks to Audio Technica. You can catch Chase on Twitter at Bodacious Chase. You can support this podcast by leaving a five-star rating and review in iTunes or by heading over to patreon.com slash weare8bit, that's A-T-E-B-I-T, and from as little as $1 a month, you can get access to some amazing goodies, including the exclusive 8-bit cast, which I hosted this week, conversational podcast discussion that can go absolutely anywhere. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Jono himself, and until next week, keep putting in work.